Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 108 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. As I mentioned last episode, I and the rest of the Modern Bar Cart squad made a journey out to Tales of the Cocktail 2019 in beautiful, hot, and humid New Orleans, Louisiana this past week. And this time around, we're going to share with you our initial impressions and some of our learnings from the seminars and tastings we encountered along the way. Tales of the Cocktail is the premier conference for anybody who is a service industry professional or at-home enthusiast of spirits and cocktails, so we've got some really fun details and insights for you. But first, before we dive deep here, I think this would be a marvelous time for you to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Cosmopolitan, affectionately referred to as the Cosmo. Despite its reputation as a second-class drink, it's actually got a lot to offer, and it features prominently in our discussion this episode, so I thought it might be nice to offer you a comprehensive recipe. To make the Cosmopolitan cocktail, you need one and a half ounces of citrus vodka, and that's a citrus-infused vodka, not acid, no actual fruit juice added, right? So absolute citron would be a good option here, popularly available. One half ounce triple sec or an equivalent orange liqueur. One ounce cranberry juice and one quarter ounce lime juice. Combine all these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice. Shake for about 10 to 15 seconds until it's well chilled and appropriately diluted and strain into a chilled cocktail glass. Notice we've got lots of fresh ingredients here, tangy, zingy, and lots of things that are chilled and cold. All makes for a very refreshing combo, especially in the summer months. The garnish for this drink is an orange twist, but for extra points, you can certainly elect to flame said garnish by expressing the oils over a flame atop the drink. This is typically executed with a simple Bic lighter, but word to the wise, it's a dangerous operation and should be attempted only by an experienced professional. The recipe we just provided for the Cosmopolitan cocktail comes to you from the popular new cocktail book, Spirits, Sugar, Water, Bitters by Derek Brown with Bob Yule. And we'll certainly be mentioning those individuals later in this interview as well. So without further pomp and circumstance, it's my pleasure to introduce my dear friends and colleagues, Ethan Hall, Russell Gehring, and Eric Holtzman for this Tales of the Cocktail 2019 impression session and seminar recap. Enjoy. Gentlemen, cheers to Tales. Cheers. Cheers. Huzzah. So, we four gentlemen are here at Tales of the Cocktail 2019. Uh, can we just go around and introduce myself, ourselves, not starting with me, but starting with the other er- Eric in the room? Sure, Eric Holtzman. If you've listened to the 
movie cocktail podcast. You might that, remember that was Senor me. Holtzman. That's right. We'll do it again sometime. Uh, next up is Russell Gang and Ethan Hall. All right, we got our two other modern bar cart co-founder C-suite gents here in the room as well. C-suite. C-sweet, baby. So uh, what I want to do here is just give folks a general impression of Tales of the Cocktail. We're going to maybe dig deeper following here. Uh, and I'm definitely going to present some episodes about some of the stuff I've been learning because I've just in the couple seminars I've already attended, I've got some really, really rich content that I'm excited to dig into. Uh, so Russell and I, the two here who have been hitting the seminars pretty hard, are going to talk about those. But Ethan and Eric Holtzman, could you give us kind of a sense of your initial impressions of Tales of the Cocktail as new timers? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, it's a really, really awesome event. It's really interesting. It's, I mean, I think for anyone who's even remotely interested in, you know, the, the bar industry or, or just the beverage industry or other facets of really just the greater hospitality industry, um, this is a fascinating place to be. It's a fascinating place full of you know, you have seminars, you have tasting rooms, you have um, a lot of events with different vendors, distributors, a kind of a who's who of people in the industry, mixologists, bar owners, bartenders, uh, and all that that encompasses. It's really neat. It's a lot of fun. And yet it's not only for people in the industry, right? There's right. a lot of like enthusiasts a around. Lot of, yeah. And, and, and friends of those in the industry, much like myself and others here. So it's definitely not exclusive. It's not like one can't uh, go and enjoy if they don't themselves work in the industry. So it's it's a very, I'll say, inclusive event. It's a lot of fun. It's a blast. I'd say, yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. Do you have a favorite part or maybe like one or two like most like memorable highlights so far? Yeah, I want to say this was actually um, yesterday, and I want to say it was with Redemption in one of their tasting rooms. I want to say it was Redemption Rye. So I guess what this boils down to is a couple of just tasting rooms in particular, one being Redemption, the other was Scotch Today. Uh, the Talisker. The Talisker. Like, just really fun setups, really uh, great pairings with cocktails and some fun food items. I, myself, huge seafood guy, so we had a little oyster situation at one point. And, uh, I think they other, both had oysters, right? I, I, I think they both had oysters, come to think of it. Yes, they did. So um, your highlight of the cocktail uh, <laughs> cocktail festival eating. is oysters yeah. and who serves them. Well, Basically. They did put liquor in at least the Talisker oysters. They, they did. It was like a little oyster, oyster, little oyster type shooter or their, their take on it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just tasting rooms and the personalities and um, just sampling the products and learning more about it from the brand themselves. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah. So for context, for anyone who hasn't heard us talk about Tales of the Cocktail before, if you spend like a very nominal amount on seminars, a little bit over a hundred bucks usually, which is in the area of two seminars usually, you get a tasting room access on your wristband, which means you can basically walk into one of three or four tasting rooms that are active at any given time. And usually they switch over at least once or twice a day. So there's probably around 10 different tasting experiences that you can kind of go through immersively at, at any given point during the day. And the nice part is, as we've discussed uh, with some of our distiller friends who we've done tasting rooms with in the past, there's a mandatory food spend. And I think it's so smart on the part of Tales of the Cocktail because you're either coming in hungover, potentially, you know, if, if you behaved a little... A little too much. Uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Too much immersion. Or... 
you know, you just kind of want to maintain. And so the nice thing is you're not just getting liquor straight to the face. You're also taking some delicious beignets. And usually there's a local twist on the on the food as well. Ethan, what about you? What are your impressions? I mean, first impression from a business standpoint, this is the, I hate to say, like, this isn't the World Series of Cocktails. This isn't a competition. But what it is is it's the opportunity to go and below all of your advertising budget or your promotional budget if you are a brand representing there. So you get some really cool things showing up and it makes a huge impression, um, you know, between Talisker and their cocktails and oysters to GH Mom coming out and debuting as the only non-liquor brand there with their virtual champagne sabering area. There's a lot of great, there's a lot of creativity being put into how to promote these brands, but at the end of the day, the people who are tasting you through these things are the A team of their brand reps. So you're also it's an educational thing, but it is kind of there's a Disneyland aspect to it and it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. Eric, you you were definitely like pointing that out. You're like, this is like a this is like a this festival. Literally like like adult Disney World. Adult theme park. Well yeah. it was like a big corporate party because it was I was expecting when you said tasting room access, I thought it was going to be a giant convention hall, like a great American beer fest kind of thing. I was going to go booth to booth to booth to booth and just drink a bunch of whiskey. Instead, it was hotel suites with De- oysters and cocktails. And more. decked out in the history and, and, and uh, kind of their own their own character or their own theme in some cases. So it's not just, again, to your point, not just like a booth situation or a very bland quite the opposite it's really all about the experience it's very experiential and immersive which is awesome it's hospitality industry it's like hospitable it's like a 3d montage yeah well yeah and it's the nice thing about like to that point they do such a good job these are expensive tasting rooms if you're paying for this chances are you're a big brand who's owned by one of the big conglomerates which is one of the one of the maybe less cool aspects is that in the past there's been a little bit more craft representation here um but from a consumer standpoint, the nice part of having these big brands take these tasting rooms is that you get such a like a curated experience. You walk in, there's like air conditioning and the lighting is perfect. And Ethan, talk about your sabering thing. Like to explain what sabering champagne is for the for most normal people who are listening and then tell us what your experience is like. All right. So if you want to see a video, just uh, follow me on Instagram at, at Ethan J. Hall. Uh, the GH mum. Yeah, that was shameless. <laughs> I, shameless plug. I'm sorry that I didn't wait to plug my pluggables till the end, but I always forget my usernames. And Okay. So um, the GH mum setup, I already mentioned it once. They had a taste. They had a dedicated sort of, I guess you would call it like they kept having little secretive, what do you call that? It's, um, they're trying to make it more exclusive. That was the word I was looking for. They had little exclusivity rooms where you had to wait to get a tasting and it was a small group. So Eric Holtzman and I did a tasting. We were the only people who showed up there right when they opened. So we got a two-person <laughs> private tasting from their nice. uh, from their top brand people. And the idea was that someone from the tasting room would be allowed to go into yet another secret room and learn how to saber a bottle and then saber a bottle into an ice wall that you would then initial with a Dremel. So we both went back there. Whoa. Oh, you weren't doing the digital one. You did the No, no, we got to do the real one. Oh, you got to do... Oh, my. I thought you and, did uh, the digital one. Oh, my God. That's why it looks so real. Yeah, and so Holtzman <laughs> goes first. He's like... <laughs> this is amazing. Wait, yeah. You got it on your first try. I did, and it was 
honestly kind of a rush. It was fun. It was uh, it was it was a blast. I'd definitely never done it before, so a first on many fronts. But um, very fun, very cool, very cool experience. Um, just to like kind of icing on the cake. Um, so, so how do you how do you sorry? So first of all, disclaimer. If you try this at home, you're probably going to ruin a champagne bottle, maybe your hand. So please don't try this at home. Just don't do it. Don't blame us. You can't blame us now. Just do just it. Claimed. So that being said, how would one savor a bottle of champagne? If one were to savor, the interesting thing, if I understand it correctly, is you're not you're using the pressure inside the bottle and you're just kind of helping it along to bust the end off. And so, so pop, the pop the cork. Yeah, well, you're also popping the glass that's around the cork. Oh, okay. Um, and so you're trying to work it up. Yeah, you guys are giggling. Uh, <laughs> and what you're really doing is you're trying to focus that carbonation towards the end of it with the closest thing I could describe. And again, I am not telling you to do this at home, but if you were to, use the dull backside yeah. of your thickest chef's knife or cleaver, and you're try and you need to just run the thing up the neck of the bottle towards the cork and follow through at the end like a back like you were backhanding a tennis ball. The champagne saber was like a super dull machete is the yeah. best way I could describe it. Yeah. And so my mistake the first time didn't follow through. When I did, cork just goes flying into the ice wall in a room that kind of looked like they were trying to pull some saw shit on us, like there's plastic on the on the oh ground so that the ice wouldn't, you know, melt into the carpet. Oh, I see. Um, I and see. the door closed behind us, and, you know, there's a man in a tracksuit yeah. who's teaching us. <laughs> and you were just alone in a room with this bottle of champagne and a dull knife? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it was, it's and exhilarating, it's and yeah. it's badass. Yeah. Yeah, I love, I love the video. That experience, like, again, sorry to, like, just hammer this again, they were... Some of these rooms are so dialed in on creating that experience that if champagne is one thing, they're trying to create an experience of exclusivity and fun. What's more exclusive and fun than being taught how to savor champagne and then doing it? Right. And then, Russell, did you say that there was, like, some, like, secret highball thing that you did this morning? Oh, yeah. So, uh, yesterday, I don't I don't know how secret secret truly was, but I looked down on the ground and I just see, I recognize a, um, oh, gosh, so the Q brand. Q. Um, Q. Yeah. yeah, Q. I don't know, I couldn't remember if that just is Q. I think it was Q. I didn't know if this stood for anything else. So I just noticed it was painted on like the sidewalk and like it was pointing arrows and I noticed it twice and no one wanted to follow up on it yesterday. I don't know what was going on. Everyone was like, no, let's go in and do all the normal tasting. So today I was out with my fiance Rose and I was like, we're meant to come back and meet you guys. And I decided, you know, I'm going to follow the arrows. <laughs> I just started following them. And like at this point they're pretty uh, faded because everyone power washes the sidewalks on Bourbon Street uh, every morning. So yeah. I don't think they accounted for that when they're doing their little bit of like Banksy artwork. That that is a good thing that they yeah. power wash though. It is yeah, a oh, it is stinky, definitely. stinky street. Yeah. Well, you walk out there at the night, but um, yeah. So I just follow and I notice in like about a block away, there's this like courtyard area, and you kind of see some people hanging out in front, and then they kind of wave you down once they kind of see your wristband, probably. And boom, you're like taken in there and they got like all sorts of tastings. They're doing different liquors and then they kind of mix up a drink for you. They also had hats. They had a little branded sign. They had a courtyard area set up. And it was like almost kind of like restful little oasis from the normal hustle and bustle of Tails. Because by noon at Tails, everyone's there. And yeah, that's, that's every, yeah, exactly. And you do want to like kind of get away from it a little bit. We, we took a couple little opportunities today. They had a, I think... 
what was it, Beam Suntory was sponsoring a, a recharge room where they had some food, some yeah. some drinks, and you could pl- lots of plugs where you could plug in and charge your phone. That's where I charged the GoPro. And then we also, they had a little postcard station where we made silly postcards and sent them all to my wife, so that'll be fun. Uh, and there was also like a tarot card reader in there. Yeah. So there's always spectacles everywhere. Like yesterday, there was a second line, which is uh, like when they have a funeral here in New Orleans, they call it like a second line. And it was for the death of plastic straws. It was sponsored by a big uh, paper straw company. And it was a big spectacle. They started and they went all the way down Bourbon Street with the cop cars and everything, the whole brass band. They had a guy out there today who was on stilts doing some weird stuff for Napo Castle Irish whiskey. It was there's spectacles everywhere. Uh, and then there's uh, top-notch education. So I want to talk about that in a second. But, Ethan, uh, hi- any, any highlights besides the Sabering? Ooh, highlights other than the Sabering? You I think... also got here the, the latest of all of us. You've only been here for, like, less than a day so far. Yeah, um, if I'm going to really try to wrap up a half a day of drinking, <laughs> yeah. it would be that someone was kind enough to serve me gin at 9.30 in the morning. Okay. And that, and honestly, highlight didn't see a single drunk person there. That is also interesting. Yeah. So, um, Eric, you you commented on that too, of like just the how how even though there's a ton of people, it's an enclosed space. You're sharing elevators with like a dozen other people, and you, you know everyone's kind of at cross purposes, right? Nobody is quite going to the, exactly the same place as everyone else. There's a lot of milling about, and yet there are no drunk people, despite the fact that everyone is drinking constantly. So I think that's a really nice aspect of, of the conference. It, it's Yeah. And well, and and, yeah, tolerance. Everybody knows what they're doing, but also everyone's yeah. everyone, a lot of people anyway, are usually on the opposite side of things instead of drinking. They're the ones pouring the drink. So they get it. Um, so that's a nice kind of cultural aspect. Um, Rusty. You and I took some seminars. We did. We learned some things. What did you uh, What did you take for seminars so far, and what did you think of them? Uh, I'll, I'll let you give your initial impressions as someone who's never been. I've, I've taken seminars for two other years, so give us your impressions and talk to us about what you've learned so far. Yeah, so I had no idea what I was going in for. So I, I didn't take Eric very seriously when he said, hey, sign up right away. I was like, cause, it's all right. I'll, like, I'll, come, I'll come home from work. I'll get this account set up. Figure it out, you know, big whoop. I didn't realize just the size and breadth of the event at that point. So I go, I was like, oh, okay, the normal, you know, classic, I'd call them almost like virgin classes for someone who's never been to, that you're going to catch your eye are like, hey, whiskey 101, tequila 101, mezcal 101. Yeah. And I was like, well, those are all filled up right away. Right. Either because of people like me who are just like, well, that I'm coming here to like taste things and I want to taste whiskey. I love whiskey or scotch or mezcal. And so I'm like, okay, well, what can I take? So I was like, I want to take one a day because, you know, make it worthwhile, give myself a break or just, you know, sit down. Because that's the hardest part. You find a place to sit. Like, exactly. It's, it's a standing area almost everywhere you go. So uh, yeah, at least in the seminar rooms, you have a, a, a guaranteed seat <laughs> yeah. and air conditioning for an hour and a half. Exactly. So the first day, I uh, decided to go after one of my passion projects, which is day drinking. Your passion, I, it is a passion project. It's a passion project. I've really been trying to convert more people in the idea that being out till midnight is just terrible. And this is because I wake up at 4.30 to 5 o'clock in the morning every day. So my internal clock says go to bed at 10 at the latest. Right. 
And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go learn about this. And it was just straight up fascinating. And so they won. It's um, brought, like St. Germain was like hosting the cocktails and the caps who are making all these. They're like the bartenders who actually work the event. Yeah. They're running around. They're making these great little cocktails. They're making like 100 per room because there's that many people taking these. Yeah, that, that is impressive. Let me just let me just pause. So the CAP stands for Cocktail Apprentice Program, just so you know what Russell's talking about. These are the folks who are bartenders, and they get an immersive experience. For them, they're essentially providing like free-ish labor. I don't know what the cost structure is. I don't know if they get free room and board. It's like and, a mentoring thing. They do it because there's like different years. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah, but they but the, the benefit is even though they're running around all day making these cocktails, serving them, r- refreshing these rooms, getting all of the like tastings set up, they do get exclusive attention from really important people in the industry and they and they get really good connections and make lifelong connections and friends from the event. So they're the people behind the scenes making it happen. And that's what, so when Russell says caps, making the drinks, that's what he's talking about. But so St. Germain was making the cocktails for this day drinking seminar. Yeah. And so yeah, day drinking. So I've noticed a trend, I'm sure we all have, that like quite a few cocktail bars are no longer like that late night, have a martini with your date or your wife or your boyfriend or your mistress you know, yeah whatever Co- you're going more, for more, like more. a couple of friends or <laughs> that business dog. meeting yeah you know <laughs> their colleague we've all sort of drifted early you know cousin yeah. aunt uncle yeah could be a great whole family thanksgiving you know the friend, friend yeah. or foe actually first <laughs> okay <Man> yeah servant. <laughs> This is this is the problem of us all getting together. Yeah, we just descend into madness. So, yeah, so uh, uh, trend in day drinking. Yeah, so the trend in day drinking. So, and they brought it up. I think it was out of Spain. They started quoting some actual statistics because one of the men, uh, Diego Cabrera, I'm probably mispronouncing his last name. Um, he was mentioned that yeah, drinking receipts at night have dropped four percent, but day drinking has gone up two point five percent. And so they talked about the different cultures of day drinking in Spain, in um, France. And in America, because we're at different points, we have different backgrounds that are leading to different outcomes, but they're all kind of merging. And the big trend is that people want, you know, a nice bite, quick bite of food, nothing too crazy. And the bars, the, the trick is to like, you don't make money off of food. That's what they've stressed. They are open, very honest with it. Right. Food is the best of break even thing. But if you open your restaurant early and you have sort of a day drinking program, you can kind of keep people around and they'll bring their family, they bring the kids, they keep, they stay there for a lot longer and they, you know. Well, actually you and I just saw that the other day. Yeah. We were at Sunday. We had just, we had just bottled like 800 bottles of bitters. At least. Yeah. And we roll into this place in Petworth called Reliable Tavern right at three o'clock, right when they opened. Yeah. And we knew the bartender and. Yeah, Cause you worked event with them the day before. Literally. Right. Right. So we, we roll in, it's convenient and we know that they have like, small bites from the shawarma place next door and we know they had good shot and beer combo so after a long day of bottling bitters we just decided to roll in there and then a guy came in right after us sat there for quite a while and had like a couple drinks but then he was like you could see him texting on his phone and then all of a sudden his wife and his kid came by and then the bartender was making like little drinks for the wife and then he made some virgin like juice drinks for the kid and like you could see that like that tab was more than just one person. It, was, it wasn't just a guy who came in and got a drink maybe two. It was a guy who came in, it was three o'clock, and he kind of like extended it by bringing in more people who were like from his family. Yeah, it's quite the opposite of happy hour, the old concept that bars used to really champion, which is like have an hour of like how many drinks can a person get in them and right. then they're gone. And like, you know, maybe they have some nuts or some popcorn or something like 
now people want to sit back and relax and a lot you know a lot if in, when in doubt they want to be outside and the bar stresses even if they can only get two tables out in like a parisian street sure those are the first two spots that fill up but you know they also talked about how just to build it so you can have outdoor and indoor and also how do you convert a bar to nighttime the next seminar i went to which was on day two i signed up with because it had some dc local it had derek brown and let me grab the other names because I had uh, the guy he wrote. So Derek Brown was it, the moderator. Yeah, it had uh, Philip Green, who also lives nearby. He's a marine lawyer, and he has researched quite a bit of the cocktail industry. I guess mm-hmm. he's descendant of the Peychaud's family. He writes a lot about historical figures. Yeah. So, like uh, his most recent book was Paris in the 1920s. So, if you've ever seen that Owen Wilson movie, Midnight in Paris. Oh. His most recent book is a uh, very, very much digging into that culture. But he, in the past, he's wrote, written books about like Hemingway and stuff. Yeah. And then uh, Bob Yule, uh, M. Curry Allen, oh, uh, Carry On, yeah, she's a, yeah, yeah, she's a writer for the New Margaret's York. Margaret's uh, what the M stands for. In case you're yeah. wondering, that was the first question Derek asked. And uh, <laughs> Robert uh, Simonson. Robert, uh, Robert, Robert Simonson. Yeah, Simonson. He's, he's a, See, I he, butchered every name. Yeah, well, at least you're consistent. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Robert Simonson, pretty prolific author. And, yeah. uh, Carrie Allen is uh, for, uh, Washington, Washington Post, uh, spirits writer. And so, yeah. So what were they talking about? So they were, this was spawned because Derek made a, in one of the more recent books, he said something about, I believe it was the Cosmopolitan. He just made a random claim about the drink. Okay. And, or it was around the martini. I can't quite remember. But anyway, he just said some fact about it. And one of his friends, who was also on the panel, was like, I don't know if that's 100% correct. And they went into like all the stories we kind of quote about. Whether they went into the Moscow Mules, the first one they talked about. And we've talked about that in the podcast. Yeah. So I'm really nervous to yeah, know. Yeah, the classic like... story of like three people randomly meeting in a bar. Not true. All right. Well, there's elements of it are. Okay. Like, sorry. There was a bar sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. But no, these are, they were myths that were not just like someone just lied to a friend about these were actually marketing myths like invented alongside to help propel the story to explain it after that so that was like kind of the classic corporate invented myth taking advantage of something that someone did come up with and just kind of weaving in the tale a little better okay um aspects of it were true the location was probably true right where it happened but not really exactly the way we like it because it's such a beautiful stale. And you, when you kind of say it out loud, you're like, this is impossible. Who had either, there's two different stories around the copper mugs, whether it was just she had a copper mine or she had come from Russia running away from communism with 2,000 copper mugs as her only inheritance. <laughs> like, right, when true. you think about it later, you're like, that's what you hauled out of the country? Like 2,000 copper mugs? Yeah, let's, like, let's take some raw materials. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't know if you know what fling with like, co- copper is still a metal. Like, it's not the heaviest, but. I mean, they probably would have caught her just because it would have been so loud. Yeah. Like, well, she was actually <laughs> ripping the wires out of a bunch of houses. Don't ask me why at the turn of the century they already exactly. had copper wires. Well, that's the other thing. What <laughs> copper mine is struggling so much that it, like, copper is an industrial, like, glue essentially like everything uses copper it's what we price whether or not the economy is doing well or not it's a big indicator so like and this is not so early that people are like copper is just something you bash around into swords and such like people are using it so there's no like shortage or no shortage of demand for copper so no copper was like damn let's just get in the alcohol industry yeah like, we need to make these mugs yeah that's that's how we're gonna get rid of this copper oh, See, this I, reactive metal just kind of poisonous yeah. let's drink from it yeah and then the, let's drink acid out of it yeah exactly and so then the next one they went into and each one kind of talked about different i guess you would say almost like 
ways stories are convoluted or lied about how to target how to figure out what, what they're up to okay like apocryphal stories yeah like and they're the last guy and i'm blanking on who spoke last and i'd have to look at my pictures maybe simonson or, or yule yeah i think it was simonson yeah it was simonson was Thanks, the last Rose. yeah <laughs> my fiance uh sitting up nearby just we have an out. audience for this podcast yeah. for like one of the first times ever yeah hopefully they don't we get too much of a laugh track um yeah, Simonson actually wrote down like seven great rules, and I took a few pictures. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, so he actually codified what how to spot, B, like, what's called BS, for lack of a better term. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, the next guy talked, um, or the next um, ones were, let's see, they talked about the Manhattan, we talked about the Martini, we talked, we rushed in the Cosmopolitan at the end, and we also talked about the Mai Tai, which was the second one. I think the Mai Tai is most fascinating, because it's not so much a question of, it's down to basically two people. Trader Vic and, and Don uh, the Beachcomber. Don right? the Beachcomber. And they ended up landing on the side of Trader Vic, who, while he did take a lot of his concepts from Don the Beachcomber, he was, how do we put it, he really, he actually came up with the Mai Tai as we know it. And they decided that's the important part. Like, as we all know, you can go order your drink, take a martini, for example, at lots of bars. You say, I want a martini. It can come five, six different ways. Right. Oh, yeah. As and we, he, as, as, as we found out last night, yeah. to our great chagrin. So, and that's the that's the interesting part about a drink. Like, not only is it who invented it, but what is it technically constituted as? And they right. get into all that. And that's really where, once, especially if you're stretching something back a hundred years to the birth of the cocktail, when some of these classic ones were made, what con- what it should be and where it finally got codified as we all know it is it's hard to understand. I think the Cosmo one, which we had to rush through at the end, it was kind of like an extra little bit. The people are actually all alive who were part of it. Right, and it was big in the 90s. Yeah, um, it was. Sarah in- Jessica Parker, Kim Cattrall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, we all love Sex and the City. I've watched, I'm through like season four. I keep trying to get through the rest of it. I just get distracted. Sorry, girls. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, that one's great because I think one of the people actually who's listed on inventing it was actually here and he doesn't even he's like yeah it was part of the team that invented it because someone brings the, this concept and then he have to have some other ingredients on hand and mixes it up like, it's basically just vodka lime simple syrup and cranberry right no triple no there's, second, and there's triple, also triple, no no there's second. absolute um citron is the key ingredient to making the real and that didn't show up till 88 so uh, like the, like it's a cocktail that's so young like well, actually, none of us were born then, but yeah, we're but one we, year away. We Maybe may have been, we may we have could been actually conceived be on Absolute Citroen. Yeah, like we could be the product of Cosmos. Like the wow. you know. now, if you think about it, there was a baby boom, like starting from 1988-ish till about 94. So, you know, for all we know, like the Cosmos, the only thing that kept this country from having an Italian birth rate. And we are. And we, <laughs> oh I don't even know if that's offensive. And we have just created an apocryphal story to round out the session on apocryphal stories about cocktails. Well, Anthony Russell. You're welcome. Yes. All right. So um, I've got a couple seminars that I'm just going to crank through really quickly. I took. So let me let me start by saying for those listening, maybe considering uh, attending Tales of the Cocktail in the future, there's a, a couple different categories of seminars, and some of them are some of them are actually explicit. Um, kind of like like there it's written that this is a tasting seminar this is like a culture seminar there's this sometimes you can tell sometimes you can't uh, but basically but there's drinks at all there, so there yeah that's that's true there are drinks at all seminars so like usually there's two cocktails at least 
sometimes there's a welcome cocktail and two main cocktails. But then during a tasting seminar, you're also most often nosing and tasting a specific spirit or so I've done stuff on chartreuse in the past, uh, cognac, and then the two tasting seminars that I started off with this Tales of the Cocktail were one called Liquid Apples, and that was about apple brandy, and then and the other one was uh, So You Think You Know Mezcal. And I really enjoyed doing the Liquid Apples one because there the thing that I appreciated I think the most is that there was a really good representation across the geography of apple brandy. So we had two people kind of representing the French side of things, right? So we had the um, Calvados contingent in the room. And I really love Calvados, so I was excited to taste some of that. And then we also had two folks from the United States. There was actually Lisa Laird Dunn, who is from Laird's Applejack. So she's literally a descendant of the folks who first started Laird's Applejack, which is, I believe, I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here. I think it's America's oldest spirit, and it was... Oldest continually operating distillery, I believe. Yeah, so, and... Uh, Applejacks? Yeah. Uh, like the cereal? Yep. Yes, just like the cereal. So Ooh. those for those of you who don't know, Applejack is a, an apple brandy style from America in particular. It's very different from Calvados. But, so, uh, it was really neat to, to hear them talk about how apples are different from different grains. So like one of the cool stats that I'll whip out right now, and I've got my notes in front of me here, is that three and a half tons of apples produces one barrel of a spirit, whereas one third of a ton of grain produces that same one barrel. So for an apple brandy producer, it costs $1,400 to make one 55 gallon barrel, whereas for like a scotch maker, that costs $130. So 1400 versus 130 it costs 10 times more to make a barrel of brandy than to make a barrel of whiskey. And I've always kind of been partial to fruit spirits, so I was really interested in that. So it's just something, you know, when you walk up to something on the shelf, like I did not realize that it was that drastic, like a 10 to 1 kind of ratio of, of like how much it costs them to make it. So it gives me a really different appreciation of what I'm buying. And so we talked about various types of apples, various production methods, and then of course we did a tasting of, of like six or eight different brandies provided by these folks, uh, all the way from, you know, some from California, some from New Jersey, and then some from France. So uh, that was the apple seminar. And then the other tasting seminar I did was, so you think you know Mezcal, and it was... Do I'm, you know I'm, Mezcal? Uh, I guess I don't. I guess that was the point of the seminar is... That, I, that you don't know mezcal? I mean, it's hard to know. It's, it's unknowable, man. There's no, there's really no telling. It contains it multitudes. Well, so was that, this was an interesting mezcal one, and, and I'm actually a little bit uncertain about how I feel about it ultimately, because the guy who presented it, I like him a lot. And what I like about him primarily is that... Who presented it? His name was Lou Bank, and he, he runs a company called Sacred. Uh, it's an acronym that stands for something... Um, pertaining to mezcal but it's a, it's a charity actually so a lot of the like actually all of the profits from what he does goes directly back to people in mexico whether it's sustainability or earthquake relief or water or schools anything in mexico that, that kind of surrounds the mezcal industry and what was interesting to me about the whole mezcal situation is that it's very it's got like a lot of buzzwords there's a lot of people who are mezcal snobs and, and it tends to be a very polarized like agave is a very polarizing landscape and what i like about lubank 
as he was presenting this, he did a couple things. One is that he wasn't polarized on anything. He was like very accepting of different views and, and didn't really subscribe so hard to one view himself that he was sitting there and, and trying, you felt like it was propaganda in any way, which in some of these tasting summers, you kind of feel like they're, they're really taking a specific tack. But then the other thing I liked is he presented the tasting as a story. So we had these, these nine different copitas. If you go over to the Instagram at Modern Bar Cart, you'll see these beautiful handmade copitas. Usually they're just plastic branded tails of the cocktail tasting cups, but these were handmade clay copitas, which are like little, um, little shells that you drink mezcal out of and like oyster shells or? well not like actual shells, but they're they're not yeah, quite they're like they're sh- like they're, a mini bowl they're like. shallow yeah they're mini bowls they're, oh, they're very okay. shallow um so they're traditionally made out of gourds dried oh. gourds oh. Um, but these were made out of clay and so he had nine lined up three by three and basically the way he took us through it was kind of like a story it's like well when i first got into mezcal i thought i was looking for the my perfect mezcal variety and there's hundreds of different species of agave. Um, And so he basically took us through three different agave spirits made by the same producer. And then the second row is like, well, but then what I realized is maybe what I'm looking for is my perfect producer. And then we tasted three of the same mezcal varieties. So like an Espadine, for example, by different producers to kind of show how different producers put their handprints on it. And then he said, well, and then after that, I realized maybe I was, maybe I wasn't looking for either of those things because the last tasting was about the land and it was actually the same exact product made by the same exact mescalero, but just at like different times of the year when different Mm -hmm. wild yeasts were flowering. And they were actually the biggest difference between any of them was that last row when it was literally the juice that comes out of like if you put those three bottles next to each other on a shelf they would look identical besides the batch number so that was really cool and then the rest of it kind of got into more of the kind of ethical side of mezcal just because there's a lot of environmental stuff and and just ethical uh, and regulatory stuff going on so there was a lot of conversation it was a really cool conversation um between like like there was literally a distributor who sat there and said like listen like, I want you to tell me I import agave I uh, or I import mezcal. I want you to tell me how to keep it real. How did like, because there's so many different options. Like, how do I do the right thing for the producers and for the consumers? And so it's just a really robust conversation. It was, it was really, really. So is mezcal like going a little more like wine where you can't, every batch is going to be just unique. You can't. Well, the thing that makes mezcal different. You can't reproduce batch over batch. Like I it can kind of yeah yeah kind of in that way um, gotta, like I really want a fall twenty seventeen from the so actually Juarez. that's that's a this is a really cool point so you're you're absolutely right but for a different reason so wine a, a grape a grape takes a year to uh, mature so the differences between various wine vintages are mostly due to uh, the difference in rainfall and weather and terroir in that year. Mm-hmm. However, it takes an agave piña anywhere from 8 to 20-something years to mature. So that the, the difference is not going to have to do with like the, the amount of time that it took to mature because that's like averaged out yeah. over a bunch of different seasons. What's, what it's going to happen is like when – because Once you cut it. Right, because it's all wild fermented. Exactly. So yeah, literally these guys are cranking it out all, like, all year round because it's not like um, – it's not like apples. So, for example, in the apples uh, seminar, they made this point of like, yeah, we can only harvest like for two months out of the year, which means our distillation time 
and our fermentation time is very limited. We can only have this one chunk. But for agave, they can just dig that stuff up. So they're producing constantly in small batches, much smaller batches, but just constantly. So it has to do with like, okay, he, he brought up this fact that literally this mescalero is fermenting this agave in a bull skin. Literally, they took a bull, they killed it, they tanned the hide, and they made a big giant ass bull out of it. And this bull skin fermenter happens to be under a little avocado tree. And when those avocado flowers flower a oh. couple times a year, that's where the yeast that are going to ferment that from. And he said when you bite into those little uh, um, avocados, they taste a little basil-y. And sometimes you can taste those basil-y notes in the, in the um, product depending on when it was fermented and what was in flour. So that's, that's where some of that uh, variation was coming from. Um, and I, I was just absolutely fascinated. So that's the kind of stuff that that that, that type of storytelling is, is really interesting. And then I guess the last one that I'll just mention that I did this morning, which I really enjoyed, was Menu Theory and Design. And this was kind of like a headliner seminar because it was done by Dave Wondrich, who's the author of Imbibe. Dave Wondrich is always a big personality here at Tales of the Cocktail. And then it was also uh, led by Jeff Barry, who is a big tiki author, and he runs Latitude 29 here in New Orleans. Excellent tiki bar oh, can i mention some of that yeah uh, jeff barry was the source for a lot of the tiki information about the mai tai oh so yeah she said if i get anything wrong just go next door and blame jeff barry and yeah. i think that's something to point out is that these people all know each other a lot of the people so yeah it's a very familiar setting like you're really you're seeing a group that's they're all friends for the most part and so they they have a very good repertoire when they're talking to Exactly. Yeah. This is not like a business seminar where you get like four people from four different companies who just show up and talk at each other or across each other or just straight to you and ignore their hosts. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, and this, this was a great example. This menu theory and design was a great example because they would just transition slides. You could tell that they had choreographed it and written it together. Um, and so it talked about the history of the menu, like literally from when people in saloons would hang up bed sheets with, uh, like the whiskey price written on it (laughs) to, now when we have like digital menus so all the way up through that they had great pictures and examples of it and then they gave us basically 10 commandments of effective menu design so uh, i won't get into this here because i'm thinking maybe that might be something i kind of roll out as a separate little episode to help you out um but those are the main kind of takeaways i took from from my tasting seminars and i guess like that that kind of concludes this little recap. I don't want to go too much farther in depth. You may have to pay six to five dollars. So otherwise, exactly. Yeah, you gotta uh, uh, go ahead. Send us a check. Make that to Modern Bar Cart LLC if you want to hear more. That, um, that's the rough cost of each seminar, by the way. We yeah, just come with that number out of nowhere. <laughs> Last thing I want to say before we wrap up, I'm I've been taking a good amount of video. We'll see how it turns out, but uh, in the couple weeks following Tales of the Cocktail, you can, if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, which please, please, please do, it helps us out a lot in terms of getting ready to get our channel kind of verified. Uh, So please check us out on YouTube. You'll see on our channel in the following weeks some highlights from Tales of the Cocktail, some of those things like the second line for the Death of Plastic Straws, some of the stuff from our tasting seminars, and just... uh, other entertaining videos of us doing terrible things in New Orleans and getting drunk and eating delicious food. So God, the food's good. Yeah, the food is good, folks. You would That's... think that getting the heat you can't eat, and yet you can eat this food. This is a civilization built on figuring its way around that problem. Yeah, yeah. So, gentlemen, thank you. Anything else anybody wants to add before we sign off here? 
Negative. Okay. Folks, that's us coming to you from Tales of the Cocktail here in New Orleans, 2019. We're signing off. We'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. 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 Huzzah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cards. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed. Tales of the Cocktail Insights by Ethan Hall, Russell Gehring, and Eric Holtzman, and a little bit of hotel room interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019. Let's go drink some rum.